Formulations committee will come to order. I, I know we have a vote at 2.45, so we'll uh, try to get through opening comments and your comments and then maybe come back and, and, uh, and uh, begin the questioning. Today we began the exercise of our statutory responsibility, a responsibility Congress requested to review agreements between the United States and foreign nations related to cooperation on civil nuclear programs. We must examine the political, economic, and security aspects of this agreement, weighing the risk and benefits. In doing so, we must dig beneath the surface of the agreement to expose and thoroughly examine those issues that cause concern in engaging such an agreement. We also should consider how this agreement could potentially impact U.S. strategic interests in the Asia-Pacific. The agreement before us represents a continuation of a relationship that originally began in 1985 with the congressional approval of the agreement between the United States and the People's Republic of China concerning peaceful uses of nuclear energy. It expires on December the 30th, 2015 with a new agreement, Civil Nuclear Cooperation. Without it, a, this, the civil nu nuclear cooperation we have will cease. At the time of submission in 19, of the 1985 agreement, China was engaged in activities that caused significant concerns related to proliferation, lack of safeguards, lack of export controls in Congress, and the agreement lacked key assurances to alleviate those concerns. In passing a joint resolution expressing its approval of the agreement, Congress required several certifications to address its concerns prior to the issuance of any export licenses pursuant to the agreement. The challenges in the relationship with China and its actions relevant to the required certifications were such that certifications could not and were not made by the administration until 1998, 13 years after the agreement originally entered force. Some of those concerns still exist, maybe to lesser degrees, but they still exist. The agreement before us now continues civil nuclear cooperation for another 30 years. I am glad the administration chose to hear the concerns raised by this committee last year about civil nuclear agreements that extended in perpetuity, including a termination of this agreement after 30 years. Thank you for that. It is right that agreements of this consequence should be periodically reviewed by Congress to ensure that they continue to be in the national interest. Notably, and not present in the current agreement, the U.S. provides advanced consent to enrich U.S. supplied uranium up to 20 percent U-235 and to reprocess U.S. obligated material. I'm sure I'm not alone in questioning this change of relationship. I hope that the administration can adequately explain why it is in the U.S. interest to allow for this type of activity using U.S. supplied or obligated material. The President's transmission letter to Congress states that this agreement is based on mutual a mutual commitment to nuclear nonproliferation, but I have some misgivings. The commitment may not be so mutual. It will be incumbent upon the administration to expediently allay concerns raised by our members. The nonproliferation assessment statement, also known as impasse, required to be submitted to Congress with the agreement identifies several potential issues of concern. According to Enpass, China's strategy for strengthening its military involves the acquisition of foreign technology as well as greater civil military integration. 
And both elements have the potential to de decrease developmental cost to accelerate military modernization. This strategy requires close scrutiny of all end users of U.S. Te technology under the proposed agreement. Further, the impasse says China's provision to Pakistan of reactors beyond CHASMA 1 and 2 is inconsistent with Chinese commitments made when it joined the Nuclear Suppliers Group in 2004. Finally, according to impasse, China updated its regulations and improved actions in some areas, but proliferation involved Chinese entities remains of concern. State-owned enterprises and individuals have been sanctioned by the U.S. on several occasions for transferring proliferation-sensitive dual-use materials and technologies. Congress should also consider China's record as it relates to missile proliferation. The 2011 Director of National Intelligence Worldwide Threat Assessment that said nuclear, excuse me, North Korea and entities in Russia and China continue to sell technologies and components in the Middle East and South Asia that are dual use and could support weapons of mass destruction and missile programs. The 2014 State Department Compliance Report said in 2013, Chinese entities continue to supply missile programs in countries of concern. The United States notes that China made a public commitment in November 2000 not to assist in any way any country in the development of ballistic missiles that can be used to deliver nuclear weapons. Concerns persist about Chinese willingness and ability to detect and prevent illicit transfers. I would like the administration to specifically address why Congress should feel confident that China will prevent illicit transfers going forward. Concerns aside, the U.S. has realized benefits from the current agreement. Economic benefits include an $8 billion sale of four nuclear reactors to, by Westinghouse in 2007, still under construction today. We're also gaining valuable insight from lessons learned in the construction of the AP-1000 reactors that will cause domestic construction to be more efficient, timely, and cost less. China has also developed and articulated stronger nonproliferation policies and export control regulations. It will now be up to Congress to determine if the concerns about the agreement are outweighed by the benefits. If so, we should approve the agreement without delay. If not, but the concerns can be mitigated, we should work diligently to find grounds upon which we can support the agreement. If the concerns cannot be alleviated, we should disapprove the agreement. All this is to say that we have a difficult task ahead of us, but one that I know we can approach seriously and with the best political, economic, and security interests of the United States in mind. I thank our witnesses for joining us today to begin this examination and look forward to working with them and their colleagues in the weeks ahead. Again, thank you for being here. Mr. Chairman, let me uh, thank you for conducting this hearing. It's a very important hearing. Uh, the relationship between the United States and China is one of our most difficult foreign policy challenges. Uh, this week, we're holding two hearings in our committee. Uh, later this week, we'll have a hearing on the territorial disputes in the South China and East China Seas. I'm looking forward to that hearing. I think it's a very important subject. Today, we'll focus on the elements of the U.S.-China relation uh, with the recently signed U.S.-China Civilian Nuclear Cooperation Agreement. 
The current agreement, as you pointed out, is set to expire on December 30th of this year. It was signed 30 years ago by President Reagan. It's interesting to point out that the implementation of that agreement had to wait for 13 years because of the Senate conditions on China's proliferation activities and then because of the aftermath of the Tiananmen Square massacre. Up front, I want to indicate that I am supportive of the development of nuclear power. It remains a smart and effective way for the United States to achieving independence and to reduce our carbon emissions. U.S. nuclear cooperative agreements with other countries provide the United States another, a, a number of important benefits. Uh, first and foremost, uh, the one, two, three agreement can help achieve our non-proliferation objectives because we seek to uphold the highest non-proliferation standards in these agreements, including ensuring nuclear technology and material are never misused for military purposes. That'll be an issue I expect our committee will want to explore. Second, these agreements are critical for maintaining a robust nuclear industry. The enormous growth in Chinese nuclear power generation represents a major opportunity for U.S business and one that they've already taken advantage of. The reactors that the United States is building in China are already creating high quality jobs in the United States, including in my home state of Maryland. And finally, these agreements are an important opportunity for the United States to assist nations in reducing their carbon emissions. China is the world's largest carbon emitter and its carbon emissions will continue to grow for at least the next decade. As part of the joint announcement by the United States and China on climate, China committed to get 20% of its energy from clean sources by 2030. Nuclear power is a way China can lower its carbon emissions and in turn foster global action to address climate change. So these are important reasons to move ahead with one, two, three agreements, and I fully understand that. But as the chairman pointed out, despite the benefits of this agreement, there are a number of concerns that I hope the witnesses will address uh, during this hearing. While progress has been made and China's non-proliferation uh, has been made, China's non-proliferation policies remain problematic. Multiple State Department reports document Chinese companies and individuals who continue to export dual-use goods relevant to nuclear and chemical weapons and ballistic missile programs in Iran and North Korea. Year after year, these individuals have been sanctioned related to their efforts to proliferate weapons of mass destruction. What is preventing the Chinese from taking action against the companies and individuals who we have identified to them? I would like to he hear whether China's non-proliferation record was addressed during these negotiations. To me, this agreement presents us with a golden opportunity to place pressure on China to halt these dangerous activities. My second set of concerns focus on Chinese plans to export nuclear power plant based upon technology provided them by Westinghouse. Under a deal signed in 2007, Westinghouse agreed to transfer its reactor technology to China. This allows Chinese firms to increase their share of the nuclear work with the ultimate goal of exporting reactors themselves. We know China has an aggressive move into the many markets that the United States uh, used to have the leading share. The transfer of the most advanced U.S. technologies may provide China the keys for dominating the world nuclear power industry. That could cost us jobs. So I'd be interested in the witnesses' analysis as to what the future holds in regards to the U.S. company's ability to dominate the, um, the international market on, uh, on reactors. Relating to this issue is China's decision to continue building power reactors in Pakistan. 
Pakistan does not have safeguard inspections by the International Atomic Energy Agency and has not been approved as a recipient state by the Nuclear Suppliers Group. China argues its contracts with Pakistan were in place before it's, it agreed to abide by the rules of the Nuclear Supplier Group. However, as China makes plans to export nuclear reactors, reactors based upon U.S. technology to other countries, one has to wonder about its commitment to nonproliferation standards it has signed up to. My last concern is about safety, safety in the Chinese nuclear plants. I know we have worked extensively with China on their regulatory and safety regimes, but I am concerned that nothing in this agreement squarely addresses the issue of the next Fukushima or Chernobyl happening in China. China is building a nuclear fleet that will be bigger than any other country in the world. China is an authoritarian country which has a history of problems with regulatory structure. Although we can never make nuclear power 100% safe, we should strive to make them resilient as possible to natural vulnerabilities and national security threats. These are all issues that I think need to be addressed so that we can weigh the pluses and minuses, or, or say the pluses of an agreement, but the uh, risk factors of entering into such an agreement with China. And I look forward to hearing from our witnesses. Uh, Senator Cardin, thank you for your leadership here. I think what we'll do, last night I know we had an extensive uh, classified briefing, but I, I know we still want to hear the public comments that will be made. So why don't we just adjourn, sprint to the vote, come back, and then start. I know we have to finish for a 4 o'clock briefing on another issue, but I think that would be best, okay? And if you all don't object, I'm sorry we start a few minutes late, but I think that's best for you, okay? Thank you. Thank you guys for your uh, patience. Um, I know we had a very good and extensive briefing last evening and I know numbers of members were here, but I'm gonna go ahead and introduce you and let you begin your public statements. And again, uh, apologize for the late start and interruption. Our first witness is, honorable, is the Honorable Thomas M. Countryman. He currently serves as Assistant Secretary of State for International Security and Nonproliferation. In this capacity, Mr. Countryman, leads the Bureau at, at, at the head of the U.S. effort to prevent the spread of nuclear, chemical, and biological weapons, their related materials and delivery systems. And uh, we appreciate your many appearances with us both here but also uh, on the phone and other places. Our second witness is Lieutenant General Frank Klotz, U.S. Air Force retired. He currently serves as Undersecretary of Energy for nuclear security and the administrator of the National Nuclear Security Administration. In this capacity is responsible for the management and operation of NNSA as well as matters across the Department of Energy and NSA Enterprise in support of President Obama's nuclear security agenda. Prior to his service at the Department of Energy, General Klotz served nearly 38 years in uniform in a variety of military and national security positions relevant to today's discussion. I want to thank you both for being here and sharing your thoughts. I remind you your full statements will be entered into the record without objection. So uh, be as brief as you wish and we look forward to answering, answer, you answering our questions and again appreciate you being here. <clears throat> Chairman Corker, Ranking Member Cardin, members of the committee, thank you for the opportunity to continue today in open session the briefings and consultations we have had with members and staff since these negotiations begin, began, continuing through the initialing right up to the signature and submission 
of this agreement to the Senate. This agreement advances the primary goal we have in every 1-2-3 agreement, which is strengthening the long-standing non-proliferation policy of successive administrations. It also has important commercial and diplomatic benefits that I'll talk to only briefly since you have my prepared statement. The U.S. relationship with China is one of the most important and complex relationships in the world. This administration's approach to China combines building high-quality cooperation on a range of bilateral, regional, and global issues and constructively managing our differences. Peaceful nuclear cooperation is a key example of that type of cooperation, and this agreement is in the best interests of the United States. This agreement is not a favor that we give to China or that China gives to us. It is in the mutual interests of both countries. Like all one, two, three agreements, it is a framework within which decisions on export of technology and materials are made. The agreement contains all the U.S. nonproliferation guarantees required by the Atomic Energy Act, safeguards, peaceful use assurances, physical protection assurances, U.S. consent rights on storage, retransfer, enrichment, and reprocessing of U.S. obligated material. It contains enhanced features beyond those contained in the current U.S.-China 123 agreement. China's non-proliferation record has improved markedly since the 1985-123 agreements. It can do still better, and we expect it to do better in the non-proliferation field. Implementing this agreement will better position the United States to continue to influence the Chinese government in a positive direction on non-proliferation objectives. The current agreement has allowed, and this agreement will continue to facilitate deepened cooperation on threat reduction, export control, border security, nuclear safety, and nuclear security norms. This agreement also has economic benefits. China has the fastest growing nuclear energy program in the world. It constitutes one-third of the global market in civilian nuclear energy. American nuclear suppliers are there now, and they are keen to play an even larger role in the Chinese market. These opportunities could support tens of thousands of high-paying American jobs, and the U.S. nuclear industry strongly supports this agreement. As Senator Cardin noticed, noted, the agreement can also help both of us to deploy non-fossil-based energy sources to address global climate change. Last year, President Obama and President Xi announced our respective post-2020 climate targets. China believes the large-scale development of civilian nuclear power is key to meeting these targets, and their commitments reinforce opportunities for U.S. suppliers in the Chinese market. On the other hand, if civil nuclear cooperation with China lapses, our influence on Chinese practices in nonproliferation and other fields will be placed in serious jeopardy. We will lose insight into China's civil program. The vacuum of cooperation with China would be filled by other nuclear suppliers who do not have the same approach as the United States to nonproliferation and technology transfer concerns. 
and China would view such a lapse as evidence that the U.S. is less willing to engage China at a high level on important commercial, energy, and security-related issues. In sum, we believe that the strategic, non-proliferation, economic, and environmental benefits of this agreement prove that continuing nuclear cooperation with China is in our best interests. We have no illusions about the challenges of working with China in nuclear energy or in any other field. But we must remain engaged. We must constructively manage our difference and work collaboratively to advance the numerous objectives we have in, in common. The passage of this agreement is the best way to continue to influence and to benefit from the world's largest nuclear market. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. General. Chairman Corker, <clears throat> Ranking Member Cardin, and distinguished members of this committee, thank you for the opportunity to testify on behalf of the Department of Energy on the proposed U.S.-China Agreement for Peaceful Nuclear Cooperation. I'm very pleased to join my colleague from the State Department, Tom Countryman. Uh, I, too, have provided a written statement, so I will be brief in summarizing uh, what is uh, in that. First, let me note that Secretary of Energy Moniz and I fully share the uh, thoughts expressed uh, by Tom Countryman this morning. And we also share the view that the proposed agreement provides a comprehensive framework for nuclear cooperation with China while fully protecting and advancing U.S. interests and policy objectives with respect to nuclear nonproliferation and the peaceful uses of nuclear energy. Thus, the Department of Energy supports entry into force of this agreement following the requisite congressional review period. This agreement is fully consistent with the law and incorporates all the terms required by Section 123 of the Atomic Energy Act. Moreover, it reflects important advances over the current agreement, several of which we discussed uh, during classified briefings to both members and staff of this committee. Specifically, the successor agreement enhances the provisions under which we would allow China to enrich and reprocess U.S. obligated nuclear material by requiring that such enrichment and reprocessing take place only at facilities in China that fall under their International Atomic Energy Agency Safeguards Agreement. It also provides for enhanced controls on the export of nuclear technology to China. And it commits both sides, both the United States and China, to deliver export control training to all U.S. and Chinese entities under the 123 Agreement. Taken together, these elements, not included in the 1985 agreement, provide an unprecedented level of insight into commercial transactions. Since the preceding 123 agreement was signed 30 years ago, we have witnessed China make significant strides in its civil nuclear program. As uh, Secretary Countryman pointed out, China now has over 20 nuclear power plants in operation, over 20 under construction, and dozens more planned. In fact, over one-third of nuclear power plants currently under construction in the world are in China. China increasingly seeks services, technology, and equipment from U.S. and other foreign commercial companies for its civil nuclear program. We believe it is in the best interest of the United States to support U.S. industry's ability to compete in this fast-growing and expanding market. American civil nuclear companies already have numerous joint ventures with China, as well as significant assets on the ground there. 
They are also supplying China with equipment and components, as well as a broad range of services, including engineering, construction, and training. The successor 123 agreement will facilitate continued nuclear cooperation with China, subject, of course, to U.S. government review of specific requests to transfer nuclear technology, information, material, equipment, and components. On the other hand, if the agreement lapses or is not renewed, U.S. industry would essentially be cut off from this market, constituting a potentially serious commercial threat to the overall health and well-being of our civil nuclear industry. U.S. industry would also be precluded from taking advantage of future opportunities in the world's fastest growing civil nuclear energy market. In addition to these economic benefits, the successor 123 agreement will also serve as an umbrella for continuing other forms of U.S.-China bilateral cooperation in promoting the important U.S. policy objectives with respect to enhancing nuclear safety and nuclear security around the world, an objective which directly supports U.S. national interests as well as those of our allies and partners. U.S.-China cooperation in the civil nuclear realm, such as under the 1998 U.S. Peaceful Uses of Nuclear Technology Agreement, has been absolutely invaluable in this regard. And in fact, just last week, senior, senior U.S. officials met with their Chinese counterparts in Chengdu under the auspices of the Punt Joint Coordinating Committee. They discussed many of the issues that the ranking member expressed a concern about, including uh, not only nuclear technology, but security, safeguards, environmental concerns, waste management, emergency management, and the security of radiological sources. The U.S. participants have reported to me that they had unique and unprecedented access to a number of construction, scientific, and academic sites in China. This level of interaction and access is only possible because of the value China places on having a 123 agreement with the United States and the desire to cooperate with the most advanced, safest, and most reliable nuclear program in the world. Without entry into force of this successor agreement, we will lose a critical mechanism for influencing China's nonproliferation behavior, we will lose potential economic advantages, and we will lose the insight that we have into China's nuclear programs, including its nuclear research and development. So again, Mr. Chairman, thank you for the opportunity to, to appear before you today. I look forward to answering any questions you or the other members of the committee may have. Well, I want to thank you both, and I appreciate you, what you do for our country. And I know yesterday evening y'all had mentioned y'all were going to make the public comments as to why this was good for our nation, and certainly you didn't disappoint. But let me ask you a let me ask you a question. I, according to Enpass, and I know we've talked about this in other settings, uh, and I quote, China's strategy for strengthening its military involves the acquisition of foreign technology as well as a greater civil-military integration, and both elements have the potential to decrease development costs and accelerate military modernization. I made that in my opening comment. So there's no question that we understand going in that what we're doing here, uh, the Chinese, regardless of what they say, are going to be utilizing this to accelerate their military uh, development. Is that correct? <clears throat> what I would say, sir, is that there's no doubt, based on the historical record, that China will make every attempt to benefit from technology transfer, whether in the economic or commercial or military field. Our job, which the only begins with this one, two, three agreement, but as actually carried out 
through the licensing procedure is to frustrate that effort. We have every intention of doing so and believe we have the means to do so. So now that we've established that, that in fact this is going to happen, I, I just, uh, I wanted to, you mentioned uh, that our involvement with them would, um, you know, help um, cause proliferation not to occur. I just would like to, to ask a question. I mean, just are they organically interested as a nation? Forget the fact that in doing business with us, we champion non-proliferation and other kinds of issues, but organically, uh, do you believe that China cares about non-proliferation and nuclear safety? Uh, the short answer is yes. I do believe that China takes far more seriously than it did 30 years ago or even 10 years ago its obligations under the non-proliferation treaty as a member of the nuclear suppliers group and in other fields as well. They take it seriously. I can't say that they yet have the level of political commitment that will enable them to spend the resources you need to effectively control the export from the second biggest economy in the world, a very high-tech economy, and one that uh, they do not have a long track record uh, in controlling exports as effectively as the U.S. and other nations. I do believe they're trying. I do believe that they need a higher level of political commitment to meet the standards that, to which they aspire. In the past, when we've had these types of agreements, um, we've, uh, you know, of course, we have the gold standard agreement that we like to stick to. Um, we typically don't give advance consent for enrichment and reprocessing. Certainly, the first agreement we had with them in '85 that wasn't implemented until '98 didn't do that. Um, can you explain to us and to the American people why, in this particular case, we decided to give advance consent? China is a nuclear weapon state under the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty. It already possesses and developed on its own numerous enrichment and reprocessing facilities. Uh, there's not a logical reason nor would there be a practical effect to prevent China from enrichment and reprocessing. And then under the Nuclear Supplier Group guidelines, is uh, China upholding those? I know we've had some issues relative to uh, the nuclear plants in Pakistan. Could you talk with us a little bit about that and whether they're actually honoring the NSG guidelines? When China became a member of the Nuclear Suppliers Group, there was a consensus from the other members to grandfather construction of plants in Pakistan, which China had initiated. Uh, however, there was not agreement that that was an open-ended clause. The problem is that China has uh, since announced other power plants that it intends to build in Pakistan, and this is not consistent with the rules of the nuclear suppliers group which it joined. We raise this issue both as a bilateral issue and within the context of the nuclear suppliers group. So I just, uh, so they're, they're not honoring the NSG guidelines. We have issues there. Uh, we know that for a fact that uh, they will take, even though these agreements state that you cannot take 
this civil nuclear agreement and use it to uh, move along more swiftly with their military development. We know they're going to do that. So if you could, just if you'd step back, I know this is a way for uh, a former U.S.-based uh, country, uh, company, and, and others, I know through the supply chain, to, to enhance their business and obviously create some U.S. jobs. But could you step back and just talk about uh, why this is in our national interest? Yes, sir. As I said at the beginning, jobs are important. My responsibility is to ensure that we promote the highest standards of non-proliferation policy in the world. And that's what successive administrations have done with strong congressional support for decades. This, we would not have concluded this agreement if I were not satisfied that this was the best way to improve China's record on non-proliferation, to maintain our capability to have influence on that record. Uh, that's the very short answer. Uh, I, Frank may want to add to this. Uh, if I could, uh, Mr. Chairman, uh, the fact that we have an agreement like this and hopefully we'll have a successor agreement uh, also uh, allows us to engage uh, in dialogue and discussion uh, with the Chinese on a variety of different, uh, in a variety of different venues on a variety of different fronts. Uh, for instance, we have discussions, as I mentioned earlier, in the PUNT Joint Coordinating Committee on a whole host of safety, security, emergency response issues. Uh, we have the opportunity to discuss uh, issues associated with nuclear smuggling detection. We've been involved in the business of educating and training their people on export controls. Uh, we've helped them in the development of a, uh, a center of excellence that will uh, uh, do training in the area of safeguards. Uh, and uh, security, uh, so it's along these various avenues which we engage them, uh, not just the insight that we gain through commercial interactions with them that help move them along on issues associated with nonproliferation and with safety and security and safeguards. Well, look, I know that, uh, you know, the initial uh, uh, input as we were walking through this from, uh, from staff as y'all were dealing with them as you were moving through was, leaned on the positive side. Um, I, I do want to say that um, I understand our desire to continue to be involved with other countries uh, with our supreme uh, nuclear technology. I do think there are important reasons for us to do so. I do hope as we move through this process, again, we'll realize we're dealing with a country that plans to, to sap all of our technology and move totally to indigenous methods of doing this as quickly as possible, that they're going to use this to, uh, to develop their military. I know this is the third time I'm going to say it, but to develop their military more quickly, and that they are not honoring uh, the existing nuclear, nuclear supply group uh, guidelines. So uh, I understand, uh, you know, uh, Again, it's, uh, it's economically driven. I know we have a lot of companies that involve themselves with you towards these agreements. I do hope as we move through this, uh, we'll take into account all of the liabilities and the benefits that come with it. And again, I thank you very much for your service to our country. And with that, uh, uh, our distinguished member, Senator Menendez. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, Secretary Countryman, let me ask you, in the last few years, China's nonproliferation policies remain 
from my view, problematic. Uh, Chinese companies and individuals continue to export dual-use goods uh, relevant to nuclear and chemical weapons and ballistic missile programs to Iran and North Korea. Uh, numerous Chinese individuals and companies have been sanctioned for those activities. Were these issues addressed during our, our negotiations to renew the 1-2-3 agreement? Uh, I've addressed these issues constantly in the three and a half years I've been on this job, uh, not in the context of the 1-2-3 negotiations, but in the context of a number of regular dialogues. Okay, I appreciate that, that, but within the context of the 1-2-3 agreement, they were not addressed? Uh, no. So isn't that an opportunity to pressure China to halt these activities? As I said, we press for stronger Chinese performance at all times not just when we're in the middle of a negotiation. Did this negotiation offer additional leverage? If this were a giveaway program, perhaps, but it's not. It's one that provides mutual benefit to both countries and provides a foundation within which we can cooperate on difficult issues. But clearly it is something that China wants as much as we do, or do we want it more than China wants? Uh, I don't know, maybe we should Ask Frank if he wants to comment, do we want it more than China wants it? I think both of us recognize that the failure to renew this agreement uh, would have repercussions throughout the bilateral relationship. I think both countries are fully aware of that. Let me ask you a different question. If the Congress were to place certification conditions on licenses for the export of new reactors beyond the four that have already been licensed, uh, to the effect that the government of China is fully and completely cooperating with U.S. requests to halt and prosecute the actions by Chinese companies to export technology and equipment for ballistic missiles to Iran and North Korea, would the administration be able to make such certifications? Uh, it's the first time I've heard of the idea. Uh, I'd have to look at the exact details. I believe the Chinese government is making an effort. I don't believe the effort is yet sufficient. Well, you said before in your answer to my previous question that you have raised these questions, a, these issues, a series of times outside of the one, two, three. So it would seem to me that you would be deeply engaged in the knowledge as to whether or not the uh, administration could go ahead and certify that the U.S. requests to halt and prosecute the actions by Chinese companies to export technology and equipment for ballistic missiles to Iran and North Korea would be able to be made. So from the knowledge that you have, from all of the times that you've raised this with the Chinese, do you believe if we included such a provision that the certification by the administration could be made to that effect? Again, I'd have to look at the exact language. What I could say now is that we could certify that there is an improving trend, that the Chinese have been responsive to us on a number of cases that we've raised, but I could not sat certify 100% satisfaction, uh, no. So we, so we have, your words, an improving trend, but we don't have wh what we needed. I, uh, why wouldn't such a certification uh, requirement be useful for the administration's efforts to persuade China to halt these activities? Uh, it would not be useful if it were absolute. 
Neither China nor a number of other countries with whom we work intensively on such issues are 100% efficient and effective in their law enforcement efforts. And if the standard were absolute, uh, I'm not sure which country would be able to meet it. Well, uh, you know, I understand maybe some countries where there is a strong private sector that develops its own technology and proliferates in that respect, but China is a pretty command and control country. It's not like you raise your hand and say, I want to go a different way. Uh, so uh, it seems to me that uh, this is uh, a, a real concern. Let me ask you this. Uh, Curtis Wright Corporation produces the pumps that cool the reactors which propel U.S. naval submarines. They also produce a scaled-up version of this pump for the AP-1000 reactors Westinghouse is selling to China. Could China reverse engineer the pumps that they are receiving from Westinghouse for their own nuclear submarine program? Is the Chinese military seeking to divert these civilian nuclear technologies to its naval reactor program? Do you have any information on that? I do, and we discussed it in some detail in last night's briefing, sir. Mm -hmm. So you can only respond to that in a classified setting? I think that would be wiser, yes, sir. Uh, it would be wiser or necessary? Necessary. Wiser is one thing. Necessary is another. I think it would be not only necessary, but also wiser to have someone <laughs> more expert than me on the topic. All right. Well, okay. Well, let's, we'll have to go through that. One last question, then. Uh, what measures have been built into the agreement to prevent China from exporting nuclear technology to countries that are proliferation risk? Because China says it will abide by the nuclear suppliers group's rules for exports, but it's already violating these rules through its continuing work on Pakistani reactors. The agreement prohibits the transfer of any U.S.-provided technology to another country without U.S. consent. But it is already violating these rules through its continuing work on Pakistani reactors. There's, I think, a difference between violating NSG rules, and of course the Chinese would say their action is a matter of interpretation rather than violation. It's a difference between that and violating a 1-2-3 agreement, particularly when this agreement, unlike the agreement it replaces, has a specific clause that calls for temporary suspension or permanent suspension in case of violation. Well, you know, in your testimony, uh, your written testimony, you talk about advancing our global nuclear nonproliferation objectives. And Mr. Chairman, I begin to wonder what exactly those are, and can they be mitigated as we wish them to be instead of having a clear objective? I, of course, I am concerned about what we are doing with Iran, but I'm concerning here that we seem to be able to look the other way uh, when we want to. So I'm trying to figure out what our nuclear nonproliferation objectives are and how uh, much of a standard we are truly setting in the world uh, I was always an admirer that U.S. policy was about actually stopping nuclear proliferation, not managing it. And increasingly, when I see testimony like this, I get the sense that we are moving away from stopping it, preventing it, to managing it, and that's, that's a whole new world. But thank you, Mr. Chairman. 
You bring an interesting point when we know they're going to violate the civil military piece or they're going to violate this other piece, but uh, Senator Johnson. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, Secretary Countryman, I, I think to uh, the Chairman's question, you, you did say that China was committed to non-proliferation. The simple yes, is that correct? That's the short answer. And it kind of sounds like not a real accurate one. Um, as all you, short answers are, yes, sir. You, you, you said that uh, they are not controlling their, their exports of nuclear technology. Uh, is that because they're unable or unwilling? Well, first I would have to disagree that China is purely a command and control economy. It has a vibrant private sector. It is uh, something of the Wild West in terms of being free from government regulation and government control. And in particular, the high-tech sector does aggressively seek other markets. And in addition, there's a number of Chinese businessmen who seek the opportunity to be brokers between North Korea or Iran and producers in China and elsewhere. And there are such brokers in other countries besides China. Uh, it's our assessment that the Chinese government simply does not have currently the bureaucratic enforcement capability and does not yet have all the legislation it ought to have in order to adequately control dual-use exports. So, so your answer is they're unable to control the, the uh, export? Uh, my answer is that they have not yet committed the resources that would be necessary for an economy of that size and sophistication. How difficult would it be for them and how, how many resources would it take? Sorry, I don't have a short answer to that one. Uh, More. You seem to indicate in your testimony that uh, if, if we don't move forward with this, if we don't provide the technology, they'll just get it someplace else and then we'll be on the outside looking in and we'll lose whatever influence we have. What, what are other alternatives in terms of supply? Uh, Senator, there are a number of different countries which are in this market space. Um, uh, countries that immediately come to mind are Russia, France, South Korea, Japan, uh, all of which are looking for opportunities to uh, pick up on the growing interest uh, in using nuclear energy to solve uh, energy demands in a number of countries, but also, as has been pointed out, to move to cleaner uh, uh, types of uh, energy to deal with concerns about uh, global climate change. Uh, so it is a, we are uh, one of the uh, most sophisticated, one of the most uh, effective uh, in terms of civil nuclear power industry, uh, but there are other competitors out there. How advanced is our technology in comparison to those other competitors? Are we a cut above? Is it all comparable? Well, I'm chauvinistic enough to say that I think we're a cut above, but they are very sophisticated in terms of their technology, and uh, the French, uh, the Russians uh, have, have, are succeeding in making sales of, uh, of uh, not only uh, full, uh, full reactors, but also of important components uh, and services associated with uh, civil nuclear industry around the world. Are we a cut above significantly, and is that cut above significance, uh, is it significant from a standpoint of military conversion? Uh, well, in terms of military conversion, one of the things that uh, we look very, very carefully at uh, under the existing 1-2-3 agreement, and one of the things that will be strengthened under the 1-2-3 agreement, uh, is to look, uh, the successor agreement, is to look very carefully at the 
the information, the technology, the materials, the components of which we as a government will review before we give approval for that to be transferred to China. One of the other things that comes up in uh, this new successor agreement is the fact that both sides will sit down annually and review the inventory of all the shared U.S. and Chinese technologies uh, and determine uh, whether or not that ought to be uh, renewed. So uh, we go into this, I think, uh, with eyes wide open, understanding the potential risk, but also balancing it against the potential benefits of being in this, uh, this important and expanding commercial market. Uh, having come from the private sector and participating in it for over 30 years, actually exporting to China, uh, reviewing or evaluating whether we should actually start, our, start an operation over in China, I've witnessed repeatedly uh, Chinese companies uh, reverse engineer and, and basically take over the, the manufacturing mm -hmm. themselves. Uh, I, would, I would assume that would be uh, certainly a risk. How quickly do you believe uh, China could become self-sufficient? Uh, I don't have a good answer for you on that, uh, Senator. I mean, my, my concern, obviously... I mean, there are a lot of variables involved in the process um, in terms of uh, uh, moving forward. Our, our assumption is that even if they uh, eventually... Uh, start to manufacture uh, more and more capability indigenously. Uh, there will still be uh, a role for U.S. industry and the industry of other countries to participate in producing particular components that are necessary uh, and providing particular after-sales services, uh, both uh, in, uh, domestically in China and in those countries to which China might export uh, reactor technology. Well, changing the direction a little bit, uh, Secretary Countryman. Can you just tell me a little bit about uh, what China's attitude is toward the advancement in North Korea of their nuclear capabilities? Uh, very briefly, China says, and I think it's borne out by their actions, that they do not support North Korea as a nuclear weapon state, and that they wish to see the entire Korean peninsula denuclearized. How much help has China given to North Korea over the years? Uh, I don't know about uh, long ago history, but in recent years, no indication that China uh, is assisting the North Korean nuclear weapons program. Okay, I have no further questions. Senator Markey, which is certainly, who is no stranger to uh, this issue. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, very much. Thank you for having this hearing. Um, Back in 1985, I was the chairman of the Energy Subcommittee in charge of the Nuclear Regulatory Commission and the uh, Nuclear Regulatory uh, Commission, the Department of Energy, so that um, I played a, a role in the construction of that 1985-123 agreement. And, and what I worked for was the imposition of two conditions before implementation. The first was the preparation of a report examining Chinese proliferation risk, and second, presidential certification that China was following sufficient nonproliferation policies and practices. During the final floor consideration, I argued that the agreement carried high risk and that the conditions were, in fact, uh, not as strong as they could have been, but at least it set minimal uh, mitigation um, uh, standards for nonproliferation concerns. Um, the Reagan administration's efforts to comply with the agreement's conditions revealed substantial Chinese proliferation risk. The agreement was shelved until 1997 when the Clinton administration certified that China was not proliferating 
nuclear weapons, our technology, and move forward to implement the agreement. And again, I disagreed because of concern about Chinese proliferation to Pakistan and Iran at that time. Together with a bipartisan group of members of Congress, I attempted to prevent the agreement from going forward. And here we are today, just as we were in 1985 and 89 and 96, 97, 98. I have deep concerns about whether China is complying with the current 123 agreement and other nonproliferation uh, commitments. Uh, concerns have been raised that China may be diverting U.S. nuclear power technology to its nuclear naval program. Would such a transfer violate the peaceful use provisions of the 1985 Nuclear Cooperation Agreement? Yes, both the uh, current agreement and the successor agreement, it would be a violation. Okay. During the 1990s, China supplied Iran with uranium, and during the past three years, both the intelligence community and the State Department have expressed continuing concern that Chinese government and private entities have proliferated technologies concerning uh, and related to nuclear weapons to countries of concern. A glaring example of private sector proliferation is Li Fang Wei, also known as Carl Lee, who has been designated, sanctioned, and indicted by the United States as a serial proliferator of nuclear weapons related technology. China has given repeated assurances that they are investigating, but reportedly have not taken enforcement action in this case. Uh, my uh, question uh, is, uh, can you confirm that the United States government, including the State Department, no longer believe that entities in China are selling dual-use technologies or technologies that could assist with nuclear weapons development or delivery systems to North Korea or other countries? No. You cannot. Second, in light of the Kali case, do you believe that China enforces nonproliferation requirements on both public and private Chinese actors to the same standard as the U.S. does? No. In May of 2014, five members of the Chinese military were indicted on charges of hacking into U.S. company systems and stealing trade secrets. These thefts occurred in 2010 and 2011 and included information related to the Westinghouse AP-1000 nuclear reactor. During the identical timeframe that these thefts were taking place, the Nuclear Regulatory Commission authorized dozens of Chinese nationals to have unescorted access to five U.S. nuclear power plants for two months, unescorted access to five U.S. nuclear power plants. I have been told by the Nuclear Regulatory Commission that this matter remains under investigation by the Department of Justice. Can you tell me whether any of the Chinese nationals who were placed at U.S. nuclear reactors uh, unescorted uh, assisted or attempted to assist the efforts of the members of the Chinese military who were indicted? I'm unable to answer a question on the connection between the two. I do know that in terms of Chinese uh, visitors who were allowed access to operating nuclear power plants in the same way that American experts are allowed access to Chinese nuclear power plants, uh, the NRC, I believe, has corresponded with you several times on this and noted that it is essentially not a matter of NRC approval of such is the is, Do you know if the investigation has been closed? I do not know that. Okay. 
Um, so can you give the committee a report on that, the status of that investigation and when they intend on closing the investigation? Because I think it's directly relevant to the treaty that we are now considering. I will endeavor to get more information, yes, sir. I think it's very, very important. Uh, in 2013, DOD report to Congress states, quote, China is using its computer network exploitation capability to support intelligence collection against the United States diplomatic, economic, and defense industrial-based sectors that support U.S. national defense programs. I'd like you to tell me whether Chinese government entities have attempted to hack into either the Department of Energy or the Department of State. As discussed last night, uh, we will give you information on that soon. General? Uh, I, I agree. We'll provide you the information we have. Yeah, I think it's mm -hmm. very important um, so that we understand, especially whether or not they have tried to access nuclear weapons information from the Department of uh, Energy or other sensitive military uh, information, uh, and that would be both energy and state, but also defense and other related uh, agencies. Um, so my, my concern here, uh, Mr. Chairman, is uh, that uh, it's quite clear that there are entities within China who continue to sell materials that could have dual use application uh, into this international nuclear weapons and ballistic missiles marketplace in the same way AQ Khan was doing it out of Pakistan. Um, the gentleman who I referred to and others inside of China are continuing to do the same thing today. Uh, I think it's preposterous to conclude that the Chinese government is incapable of shutting this down. I think it exists at the sufferance of the Chinese government. I think that it's absolutely critical that safeguards be put in place to make sure uh, that uh, there are conditions that are attached to this agreement uh, that ensure that there is not um, a continued recurrence of dangerous activity that will come back to haunt our country and the world because of China's unwillingness to actually police the export of these very dangerous technologies into the hands of those who we know will endanger the world if they gain access to it. So um, uh, I am not confident that I can support this agreement. Uh, I think it needs additional strengthening if we are going to uh, be confident uh, that the policy that we have right now doesn't help China far, far more than it's going to harm the long-term nuclear and ballistic missile nonproliferation agenda, which we put at the highest pinnacle of American public policy. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Well, we look forward to your input in that regard, and it is fascinating that uh, our witnesses uh, clearly state that China's in violation of the existing agreement, um, and, um, and yet we're extending, um, extending that agreement. Senator Perdue. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, and uh, thank you, General, and Mr. Secretary, for your lifelong dedication and service to this country. Um, and thank you for your testimony last night um, in a classified uh, environment. Um, I'll be very brief, Mr. Chairman. Um, I agree with Senator Mar Markey. I've, I've done business in China, and uh, if, they, if it was consistent with their strategic um, initiatives and objectives, uh, I believe they could police this. But 
Let me just, you've touched on several of these proliferation questions already, so I won't belabor the point. But um, in 97, China pledged to the U.S. that it would not begin new nuclear projects in Iran. 2011, uh, worldwide threat assessment by the DN or director of national intelligence listed missile proliferation uh, from Chinese entities as a concern at that point. Again in 2011, the, threat, the same threat assessment said, quote, North Korea and entities in Russia and China continue to sell technologies and components in the Middle East, South Asia that are dual use and could support WMD and missile programs. The 2015 statement uh, did not include similar language. Uh, General, could you just give us, uh, again, just a, a highlight of, of your um, perception now, your assessment on the current proliferation activity in the region that China has initiating between Iran specifically and North Korea? Uh, Senator, that's just not an area that uh, falls under the purview of what we deal with. I think the, the issues in terms of uh, Chinese uh, activities in other parts of the world is more properly falls under the State Department right. and the intelligence community. Thank you. Mr. Secretary. I guess that's me. Uh, the, uh, first, to be clear, the 1997 agreement was about official Chinese government support to activities, research and development activities, and construction of facilities in Iran that could have contributed to a nuclear weapons program in Iran. In keeping with the terms of its pledge in 1997, China terminated those activities. Uh, the separate question of whether every entity, every crooked businessman in China has stopped attempting to sell dual-use materials to Iran and North Korea is a very different question. And I uh, agree that it requires both additional resources and additional political will in China in order to put a stop to such activities, but it's a separate question from direct Chinese government assistance to a nuclear research program in Iran. In this deal, do you think that we could influence them uh, to change their uh, ability to detect that? I understand it takes investment, but isn't that really the question behind uh, what we're trying to do here? It's either they're gonna do business with us and proliferate, or they'll do business with someone else and proliferate, and so engagement is the higher um, objective here, I get that. But before we get to that point, is it not possible to influence them to actually enhance their detection capabilities? Well, uh, you know, that's an extraordinarily uh, important question, Senator. And just let me give you one vignette. Um, the Department of Energy and NNSA has had a export control outreach program uh, that relies upon the 123 agreement and the the PUNT framework that I mentioned earlier. And it's been working since uh, 2007 in China uh, to train over 100 government officials each year uh, from six different Chinese uh, agencies that have a various role to play in export control and internal compliance responsibilities. We've also trained uh, uh, dozens of additional industry personnel on subjects of export control uh, internal compliance and best practices, and, and provided that this uh, successor 123 agreement uh, comes into force, we expect to expand significantly the number of industry officials uh, that are uh, engaged in the train the trainer approach uh, to drive home that uh, non-diversion to peaceful uh, and uh, military purposes uh, as outlined under the uh, uh, 123 agreement are, are issues that the Chinese have to focus on. So uh, again, if we're going to engage, if we're going to continue the journey of bringing the Chinese 
uh, more into what we consider to be the international norm and standard uh, related to nonproliferation, related to nuclear security, and related to uh, nuclear safety standards. It involves us interacting with them at the level, from, from the Department of Energy's perspective, at the level of the technicians uh, and the plant managers and the scientists that actually have to carry out this work. We can't do that. Uh, unless we have the legal framework that uh, allows us to engage in those types of discussions. I understand, and I, I have supported um, engagement over the last 30 years personally, and I, I think I, I agree with you uh, technically that that's um, a better way to go if, in fact, we can influence through that engagement. Uh, specifically on a CAP-1400 uh, reactor, this is one that uh, the Chinese might reverse engineer off of one of our um, uh, reactors, uh, and is there any way to police that? Would we consider that a U.S. design, even though it was, um, so let's just say, reverse engineered off of our design? And would that come under the restrictions that we have on our products? Well, uh, without talking about the specifics of, of that, I mean, it's ultimately up to uh, industry to decide uh, which of its uh, technology, its patents, its trademarks, uh, it's willing to uh, part with in a, in a essentially a commercial business uh, deal. They have to make the business case for what makes the most sense, either in terms of the immediate sale or in terms of what they expect to, uh, to gather uh, from uh, a sale of uh, spare parts uh, or, or services uh, down the road. What happens at the U.S. government level is all of those requests to transfer a particular type of technology, a component, a material, know-how, uh, has to go through the Department of Energy. We consult with uh, the rest of, uh, of government to, again, eyes wide open, try to understand uh, what the implications of, our, of that are from our national security nonproliferation uh, perspectives before that goes forward. Under this new agreement, uh, any decisions along those lines will be published in the Federal Re uh, Register, and it will take uh, you know, a, period, a waiting period uh, to make sure that we have dotted all the I's and crossed all the T's with respect to uh, technology transfer. And very quickly, on that one point, <clears throat> um, when we detect violations, what, uh, what can we do um, to bring them back into compliance, if anything at all? Well, within the terms of this uh, new framework agreement, uh, we have the right to raise that. Either party has the right to raise it with the other party and to uh, ultimately suspend uh, the agreement if they're not satisfied with, uh, with the response. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Very good questioning. Senator Ranking Member Cardin, thank you so much. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman. And I, again, I thank both of you for not only being here, but for uh, the important public service that you are providing to people of this country. These are extremely important issues. I'm somewhat troubled by why there was not an effort made in these negotiations to deal with cooperation from China in regards to proliferation to Iran and North Korea by Chinese companies. Uh, we all acknowledge that there are Chinese companies that are violating the international norms on transfer of material and equipment to North Korea and to Iran. We've spent a great deal of effort to try to prevent Iran from becoming a nuclear weapon state, and it would seem to me that we would want to use every opportunity we could. So why wasn't there a greater effort made uh, to um, 
use the 123 agreement, which admittedly benefits both sides, don't get me wrong, but to use this as an opportunity to advance an important goal of nonproliferation? No, it's a very good question, Senator. Let me talk about it first in the past tense with the current agreement and then in the negotiation of the successor agreement. In the 1990s, before the one, when the 123 was in effect, but before any exports were approved, as a consequence of the uh, standards that the Congress asked us to certify, China made a number of specific commitments on nuclear nonproliferation and export control, which they fulfilled. And they included joining the nuclear suppliers group and adhering to those standards. It included ending the cooperation that they had initiated with Iran. It included uh, ending certain forms of cooperation with Pakistan. And crucially, it included them publishing for the first time the list of both nuclear material and dual-use materials that were controlled under their national legislation. Prior to that time, they had no definition of what it was they were seeking to control. That's an example of the kind of dialogue un within the context of a 1-2-3, but not in the context of a 1-2-3 negotiation, that brought about a demonstrable concrete improvement in Chinese performance. What we seek to do today is the same. And so well before my tenure began in 2011, but aggressively under my tenure, we have engaged with the Chinese, not with a general complaint that you got to do more, but with a combination of very specific bits of information upon which we expect them to act, as well as concrete offers of cooperation, of training in customs enforcement, of training in border security, of discussion, of ways to change legislation and to change national control lists to make them more effective. And as a consequence, we see more and more cases in which uh, Chinese authorities have taken action on specific bits of information, not only from the United States, but that they've developed themselves in order to prevent transfer of dual-use material. More importantly, over the last 15 years or 20 years, if you prefer, what we've seen is that Chinese state-owned enterprises are out of the business of proliferating technology to North Korea and Iran. It is rather a very dynamic, very high-tech private sector in China, which the state has not yet shown the capability and as Senator Markey, I would agree, not yet shown the political will to control adequately. But is it your view that the successful completion of the 123 agreement will um, end up making China more sensitive and more effective in blocking the export of dual-use technology? Yes, and I think this hearing will also contribute to the same goal. Okay, thank you. Appreciate that. Uh, I would like to talk a little bit about one of the selling points of a 1-2-3 agreement, it's jobs here in the United States. Because a lot of the reactor work's done by Americans and we have the companies that are located here. But the technology will be absorbed in China. China's interested in producing reactors for export. 
And there is some fear that we're accelerating the international competition from China, which may end up costing American jobs, knowing the way the Chinese uh, use their trade practices in the international marketplace. Can you give us any assurances that this agreement, this one, two, three agreement, uh, will not end up costing us our, uh, our domestic uh, jobs in this area because of the uh, accelerating the Chinese ability to compete internationally using American technology? Uh, thank you, Senator. Um, you know, our sense is, again, the uh, decision as to what specific aspects of what is U.S. origin uh, technology uh, patented, trademarked, that um, U.S. companies decide in their engagement uh, in the Chinese market or working with the Chinese in the export market uh, is a decision which they'll but take based on business. Just for one second. Yeah. Part of the entry into China very much is negotiated with the private companies, which could very well affect China's ability to use technology, would not? But, but even if, uh, it, it does, but even if the Chinese uh, are engaged in the uh, building reactors within their own country indigenously, or if they're making for export reactors, there's still U.S. content in that. There are still uh, specialized components uh, that uh, the United States has a comparative advantage and a technological lead in, in providing after-sales services, uh, uh, consulting, engineering. Uh, there's just a whole range of things which U.S. industry, not just the major uh, manufacturers of reactors, but uh, a whole range of sub vendors uh, will benefit from by being involved in this, in this, uh, this expanding and growing market. Uh, it makes me a little nervous. I hear what you're saying. Uh, mm -hmm. Let me ask one final question, if I might, uh, on safety issues, which is something we, ha we haven't touched on, and that is uh, what type of um, assessment can you give us that the uh, use of nuclear power in China will be with the highest safety standards, recognizing the uh, uncertainty of climate conditions as well as uh, national security issues? Well, for us, uh, the Department of Energy and the NNSA, of course, safety and security are paramount in all of our engagements, both uh, with our own laboratories and production plants and facilities here in the States, but also uh, in China, uh, as, as I said in the opening oral statement, we just had a meeting under the, uh, the, the PUNT Joint Coordinating Committee, the Peaceful Uses of Nuclear Technology Committee in China, uh, in which a whole range of safety and security related safeguard issues, environmental concerns, waste management concerns were raised. And indeed, this is one of the reasons why we think it's important as the Department of Energy and NNSA to be involved in this process. Uh, is to ensure that we communicate uh, with other countries, including China, best practices in the safety and security uh, area, uh, including you know, lessons learned from the Fukushima um, uh, accident um, several years ago. Uh, there are a lot of things which we're implementing domestically. There's a lot of things which uh, 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 power plants overseas are implementing uh, that draw from that. But again, it gets back to the comment that was made earlier, and it's that engagement of the nuclear safety experts, the technicians, the laboratory experts in dealing with very, very uh, complex and technical issues associated with that that helps promote safety and security um, uh, across the globe. Thank you. Thank you very much, Senator Gardner.
Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, thanks for holding this hearing today, and thank you to the witnesses for being uh, part of the briefing last night as well. Uh, this is obviously a, a very important strategic uh, discussion that we're having, securing peaceful nuclear cooperation with China uh, to create significant business opportunities for U.S. exporters. Uh, China has right now about 26 nuclear reactors, is that correct? Uh, with an additional 23 reactors under construction and plans to build up to about 100 more by 2030. For comparison, there are only 99 nuclear reactors currently in the United States. Uh, China announced in December of last year that it would spend about $11.2 billion on reactor construction during the next 10 years. Uh, it's, a, it's an incredible amount of money to, inspend, to spend uh, to invest in nuclear uh, technology and for U.S. businesses to plan that activity. But I think uh, you've heard concern from, from others on this panel, and I'd like to echo that concern about the past proliferation record of certain entities in China and what may pretend as China's uh, nuclear and ballistic programs uh, grow. Uh, we need an ironclad, ironclad commitment from China that sensitive U.S. technology will be secure for the duration of this agreement and not be used for nefarious purposes by either the Chinese government or third parties. And so as we look at the strategic implications of this agreement, we must also use it as an opportunity to raise with China a pressing need to curb North Korea's growing nuclear program and to stop Pyongyang's belligerence toward our allies in the region. After the ascent of Kim Jong-un as North Korea's leader, there seems to be a significant cooling in Beijing toward Pyongyang, though the fundamental policy has remained the same. Most recently, we've heard from Chinese nuclear scientists that North Korea has as many as 20 nuclear warheads, which could double by next year. That's a much more aggressive estimate than what we and our own intelligence community have said, and perhaps a, a sign that Beijing may finally have had enough of Pyongyang's antics. American diplomats, and I hope this will continue, must try and exploit this potential opening uh, at every level. And so to uh, Assistant Secretary Countryman, the 2011, as discussed on the panel today, uh, Director of National Intelligence Worldwide Threat Assessment Report stated that North Korea and entities in Russia and China continue to sell technologies and components in the Middle East and South Asia that are dual use and could support WMD and missile programs. Uh, but as we've discussed on the panel, 2015 DNI report made no mention of these concerns. Uh, I think there's been answers to the question of whether or not the Chinese entities are uh, currently engaged in these types of activities. Uh, and so I guess I would ask a specific question of you, and I don't think I've heard this answer today. Which Chinese individuals and companies remain under U.S. sanctions related to prol proliferation of weapons of mass destruction or missile technology? Now, it's a good question, and I'll get you a detailed list as rapidly as possible. They are uh, primarily not state-owned enterprises, but rather individual brokers and technology firms that are not under direct state control. And you'll get that list to us, thank I you. I shall. Uh, and in, in talking about the terms of the agreement entered into, if we don't enforce the terms of the bargain, uh, doesn't that lead to a conditioned willingness to ignore the plain letter of the agreement? Absolutely. That's why we enforce it strictly. The message that the President sent to Congress states this. Um, it does not, and this is again from the, the message that the President sent uh, on the announcement of the Agreement for Cooperation, uh, and I quote, it does not permit transfers of any restricted data, transfers of sensitive nuclear technology, sensitive nuclear facilities, and major critical components of such facilities may only occur if the agreement is amended to cover such uh, transfers. And this conversation that we're having today, it sounds like this is not uh, that this statement is at odds with uh, your testimony. Is, would you agree with that? Uh, 
No, Senator, sensitive nuclear technology has a particular meaning in the argo of nonproliferation, uh, and it is defined elsewhere in the text. It does not refer, for example, to the major components of a reactor, since it's reactors we're selling. It could refer to other kinds of technology with non-civilian op applications. The State Department's 2014 report on adherence to and compliance with arms control, nonproliferation, and disarmament agreements and commitments stated, and I quote, in 2013, Chinese entities continued to supply missile programs in countries of concern. Uh, in this open setting, can you share more information on the type of missile programs in countries of concern? Uh, yes, as uh, has already been mentioned, a gentleman named Li Fang Wei, uh, who uses the name Carl Lee as well, has been a primary procurement agent for Iran's nuclear ballistic missile program and has uh, provided a variety of dual-use equipment from China and from other destinations to the Iranian ballistic missile program. So that uh, would be the number one individual that we'd be concerned with in that category. Any, any uh, countries or countries including North Korea conversations? Uh, there are other procurement agents in China who work knowingly or unknowingly on behalf of North Korea to acquire technology in China. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you uh, very much for that question. Let me just to follow up on that. What is China specifically doing? Uh, we're all aware of the Carl Lee situation. What are they specifically doing to really get back to some of Senator Perdue's questioning to, to end that? Uh, we're engaged in an intensive dialogue, uh, a dialogue, well, it's a long-standing dialogue about Carl Lee that has intensified recently in which we are seeking to understand better each other's information and the capabilities in our legal system. For example, why we are able to indict him in the United States and whether the Chinese would be able to do something similar in China. Uh, I will be happy to come back when it produces some meaningful results. And again, in, in questioning with Senator Perdue, you, the mention of the agreement being suspended if they violate it, is, is that really real? I mean, I, I sit here, and I'm just going to add to that question with, with another question. I, I First of all, y'all have been great witnesses, and I think last night and today, and I mean, you're very transparent on the things that, you know, uh, even more so last night that we have concerns about, uh, obviously in a different setting. But so you, we have a company, we have U.S. interests that want to do business. We have a country like China that is not honoring the spirit of the law. They're not honoring previous agreements with the nuclear group. We know they're going to take this information and use it uh, for military purposes. We know that, even though the agreement says they won't do it. So we have companies that want to do business with them that are U.S.-based and have superior technology. And we also know, by the way, they're going to uh, use that technology in, in ways that they shouldn't. So talk to me a little bit about the dynamics. So you have, you know, Westing... Westinghouse, a division of Toshiba, <laughs> pressing you to
to do business, pressing you to, to allow this agreement to go forward. We have other companies that want to do business. Um, you also have our national interest, if you will. You have a country that, that, let's face it, doesn't honor agreements. Talk to us a little bit about the internal dynamic, if you will, to give us a flavor of the various pressures that you're dealing with, because it, it does feel a little bit like mercantilism is trumping uh, the specifics of uh, agreements being honored uh, relative to nonproliferation. Sir, let me repeat. Uh, I'll ask uh, General Klotz if he wants to comment on economic and commercial issues. <clears throat> but my job is to look after the nonproliferation policy of the U.S. that's been consistent across administrations, supported by Congresses, and that's why negotiation of these treaties falls within my bureau. And I repeat, we would still be negotiating if I weren't satisfied that this is in the best interests of promoting our strong non-proliferation policy. Jobs are important, relationship with China is important. But my job, entrusted when confirmed by the Senate, is to look after non-proliferation policy. And as we briefed a year ago on our general one, two, three policy. That is the primary topic in all of our negotiations. I know, I guess, Senator, I would look at it this way, is that, you know, our well-being as a nation rests on a number of different pillars or foundations. It rests on our national security and defense capabilities. It also rests on our uh, economic uh, strength uh, as a country, both domestically and in the international markets. And it depends upon our scientific, technical, engineering uh, infrastructure uh, that underlies that. And so, you know, the difficult challenge we face as decision makers, whether it be in the executive branch or in the legislative branch, is to strike the right balance uh, between uh, all of those uh, competing interests. Uh, I think what this agreement does is it sets up a mechanism by which, you know, licensing goes through the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, the approval to transfer various and sundry information and, and materials and components goes through the Department of Energy in consultation with the rest of the government. I, I know for a fact, having spent 38 years in, in, the, uh, in the military and the Defense Department, uh, that our colleagues over there will look very carefully uh, and very closely, uh, as will the intelligence community, when the issues of licenses and the issues of approval for transfer uh, come up and as, this, as they are reviewed, as they will under this new agreement on an annual basis uh, um, in terms of what has, has been transferred and what's on the inventory list. Senator Cardin, you want to? No. Thank you again very much. Yes, sir. Yeah, thank you, Mr. Chairman, very much. Um, a little bit on Kyle Lee. Carl Lee is wanted by the Department of Justice as a principal contributor uh, of Iranian ballistic missile programs. Uh, recent U.S. sanctions have confiscated $8.6 million in funds from Chinese bank accounts. Uh, it's linked to manufacturing and exporting missile guidance components. Has extensive network of shell companies inside and outside of China to hide his activity. Uh, what they have done over time is every time we catch him, uh, they change the name of the firm. So he's got, had a relationship with 12 to 26 firms, uh, many of which were just shell companies. And uh, again, in sending ballistic missile technology to Iran, 
He's had 16 aliases, uh, multiple bank accounts, uh, but he's kind of running this uh, nuclear eBay out of um, China, you know, selling into countries in the world that we do not want to have access to these uh, materials. Um, we have a uh, $5 million reward for information leading to his arrest. In April of 2014, he was charged with conspiring to commit fraud and bank, uh, wire fraud and bank fraud and money laundering in Manhattan. He has a large network of uh, industrial companies based in eastern China. So the Chinese government says they can't figure this out. They can't figure out how to shut him down or guys like him. But the good news is they can figure out other things in China. They figured out how to arrest five women who belonged to a feminist organization last year. They figured out how to jail 44 journalists last year. They figured out how to put 27,000 Muslim minorities in the Uyghur region in prison last year. They can figure that out. That they can do. Uh, but they can't figure out Carl Lee. Just too hard for them. Maybe it's too much evidence. Huh? Too many shell companies. Too many times. On the other hand, maybe China has just subcontracted this out to the private sector. Huh? It's a trend in America for cost-cutting reasons. Maybe China has done this in order to protect the guilty, you know, the Chinese government, the Chinese, the, the People's Liberation Army. You know? So their fingers aren't on it, but yet they can do the favors for Iran or Pakistan or other countries. Huh? That's what I think is going on. I think it's pretty clear what's going on. Well, they want to crack down. They know how to crack down. They want to crack down on Facebook. They want to crack down on Twitter. They do it. It shut down overnight. It shut that site down. They move in. They've got military all over all of these other areas of Chinese life that they believe are threats to their regime. But when it comes to threats to a nuclear nonproliferation regime, they just shrug their shoulders. They can't figure it out. Just too hard. And the reason it's too hard is that they've subcontracted this out to Kyle Lee. He'd be in prison right now. He'd be paying a big price. Pakistanis couldn't figure it out with A.Q. Khan for like 25 years. We know why. We know why he's living in a nice private residence in Pakistan, not under, not under arrest. He was a hero, not a felon from, in the eyes of the establishment. That's how we're going to get in trouble here. China gets a lot out of this. China in nuclear power is a lot like the Japanese were in the automotive industry in the 1950s. We were laughing at them. But I've had the honor, very few of us can say this, I've had the honor of bailing out Chrysler twice with votes in Congress, 1979 and then again in 2009. Huh? Japanese just kept coming. The rest of the world just kept coming. You know, so they want this technology. They want to reverse engineer it. They want to be the big marketer of nuclear power plants. They'll use the ostensible guise of their concern about climate change. Uh, and we're going to pay a big price in the long term. So we've got to start out now where we want to wind up in the long run because it'll be prettier that way from a policy perspective, much prettier. If we insist on very tough standards now on the Chinese before we finalize anything with them, they have to prove to us that they're serious about this, that people who violate 
nuclear nonproliferation policy, ballistic missile policy, pay a price. And if we pretend that they can't do it, if we pretend that they don't have an authoritarian government, if we pretend that they're a capitalist and not a communist nation, which they are, with state control over everything at a certain level, then we're just going to pretend away our nuclear nonproliferation policy. So this is a big moment for us. We have to attach conditions to this uh, that don't allow them to derive the commercial long-term benefits of having access to our, our top-of-the-line nuclear technology while simultaneously turning a blind eye uh, to what we know is a simultaneous geopolitical agenda which they have uh, and which is a constant throughout the last four or five decades in Pakistan, in Iran, and other places. So I guess what I would say to you um, uh, is that uh, from my perspective, we have a big responsibility here to uh, condition this in the tightest possible way, to expect action from China and not words, um, to not allow the short-term diplomatic commercial interests of any administration to trump the long-term nonproliferation goals, which we all say are at the highest level. We're here today because we shot change nonproliferation policy. That's why you, Mr. Chairman, and the ranking member had to do such a great job on this Iran resolution. We just turned a blind eye to it. We were selling six nuclear power plants to the Shah of Iran in 1977, 78, 79. Thank God we didn't transfer it before he fell. That was Jimmy Carter policy. So in each iteration, you know, so far, we've kind of dodged the big bullet. But each year that goes by, every compromise of the policy, especially when we're dealing with Pakistan and Iran, um, we're running a big risk. And so all I can say here is I'm going to work very hard to make sure the conditions that are attached to this reflect the seriousness with which um, we should take the lack of seriousness that the Chinese government uh, has um, evinced uh, in their nuclear nonproliferation policy. And I thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. And, uh, Ranking Member, I, I cherish the input uh, we have from all of our members. I think we have an out outstanding committee, and it's interesting on different topics, the different uh, input that members uh, weigh in with. And I really appreciate Senator Markey's contribution, as I do um, everyone's here today. I, I see your light on. I don't know if you want no, to follow up something. I just wanted to point out, of course, this is the second day of our hearings. The first day was in a closed session, and I think the information we have received will be very helpful to us, and I do appreciate the participation of all our members, particularly Senator Markey's history on this and the work that you did when you were in the House of Representatives. Just to follow up on his question before we close this out, uh, on the Carly issue with China, do you think it's a lack of capacity or lack of desire to end that particular situation? Uh, I think it's a little bit of both. I think the, the quibbles I would have with Senator Markey's description is, uh, first, he's not a, a nuclear eBay. He's more a uh, primary agent for the Iranian ballistic missile program rather than all kinds of programs in all kinds of places. He's got a primary sponsor. Uh, second point, uh, I don't think it's so much a question of subcontracting government functions to a private 
facility. You're right, that happens in a lot of countries. Uh, I think it's a, uh, a different problem that, again, is not unique to China. Uh, Mr. Lee has money and lawyers, and the Uyghurs and the women's NGOs and the others do not. My sense is that uh, as we move ahead, there may be a series of conditions that the Senate may want to place on this particular agreement, and I would encourage members and staffs who are here to, to work with us to see if indeed that is the case. But again, I want to thank you both for your transparency always and answering questions uh, in the way that you do, and I want to thank you for being here. Uh, the information. Uh, the record will be open until Thursday afternoon, so if you receive additional questions, please answer them properly. Thank you for your service to our country, and uh, with that, uh, the committee will be adjourned.